started to realize that there is a lot of value that we could give to developers who are building applications, no matter if those applications are SaaS, internal applications, customer identity, portals. Instead of like building this kind of single sign-on portal, why don't we go a step below that, like a building block for developers to do your own. Like you could build your single sign-on portal, you could build your SaaS application. Everything would use this kind of like identity platform building blocks. And we would make it easy for developers to embed this functionality within. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, Grant sits down with Matthias Wolowski, CTO and co-founder of AuthZero a platform dedicated to making the internet safer by providing an essential building block for applications, authentication, and authorization. We begin with a dive into Matthias's background in enterprise software, where he cut his teeth founding Southworks and working as an enterprise architect. During this time, Matthias would go on to co-author two books, one of which, a guide to claims-based identity and access control, would signal an architectural shift in how the world viewed authentication and identity, a precursor to the now universally accepted single sign-on. Upon seeing an opportunity amongst the now increasing number of applications moving to the cloud, Auth0 emerged as a response to how authentication needed to change alongside this shift. Grant and Matthias go on to discuss how understanding developers can be an integral part of finding a product market fit, and how landing your first enterprise customer is a pivotal part of an organization's journey. Finally, they touch on the unique role of the CTO at enterprise software companies and how that title's responsibility aren't universally set in stone, as well as how finding the right person organization fit can accelerate hiring the right people for enterprise software organizations. All this and much more in this brand new episode. Many thanks to Matthias for his time, and we hope you enjoy. All right, Matthias, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for having me. All right, let's dive on in. Tell us about your background and sort of you know how you got into enterprise software and, and the foundations for Auth0. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Auth0 started in 2013. Um, before that, I founded a consulting company out of uh, university, kind of middle uh, middle way. And so uh, Auth0 was really my first uh, kind of product company as a founder. Consulting is a completely different thing, uh, as we all know. Um, you're building for others and, and kind of small projects, and you're not really going all the way. Uh, but it was a, it was a great learning, and uh, of course, it was the reason why I started out Zero as well, because we started in 2004, I think it was uh, this company, and we would work for Microsoft, and uh, that's how I met my co-founder Eugenio. Mm. He he was working at a group called Parents and Practices. You know, back then Microsoft was trying to get into the enterprise, especially like you know Java was kind of the dominant player. Microsoft released .NET as a way to counter uh, Java and becoming a 
and SQL Server. And it was it was that time, and uh, I learned a lot through that throughout that time from Microsoft. Like kind of seeing a big company operate that. At, at the level that Microsoft does, and the, the, the idea that like the product is not just the product, the code it, it's it's much much bigger than that. Uh, and in fact, I was helping a team that was part of like this more than that, right? Like it it was a team that was kind of evangelizing the platform, that was uh, helping customers to be more successful with the platform, which is kind of initially like when you you know we start a company this. You don't do that, but you can, you know, seeing that at scale at Microsoft was a, a big learning. But coming back with the kind of a, how Zero started, one of the things that, that happens throughout that time from 2004 to 2012, which is when I was working at this company, after the... And what's the name of that company, by the way? Is it, it's, is it, it the name of the company is Southworks. It's a company from Argentina, still, it still, still exists. Cool. I was doing essentially like a offshore development. It was boutique. That was like our main customer was Microsoft. But anyway, the thing was that after the whole .NET stuff in 2006, seven, the whole Azure thing, Azure web came in. And, and similarly, like there was a, a shift in the, in the way that um, companies would develop applications now in the cloud and how they could move to the cloud was kind of like a blank canvas, right? Like uh, one of the things that was more complex about moving to the cloud was identity, how you deal with authentication. You know, remember back in the days, companies would have their own data center, their own kind of active directory deployed, their own kind of web server. And it was kind of this kind of uh, walled garden of Microsoft products or, you know, SAP or Oracle. Sure. And because of that, the whole authentication mechanism was built in into the platform and it was part of it. So people wouldn't really think about authentication uh, in, in, in a company. Because you would authenticate sort of through the VPN, right, to get access to the tools. And then it was like that, you know, hardened shell GUI center we, we talk about from a security perspective, where once you're in, you're like the apps didn't need, didn't need authentication. They were already like, yeah, exactly. you had access to the system, you had access to everything. Yeah, the, the, the firewall, you know, had, had a big kind of like a job there. It was a thing that really kind of separated the internet users from the extranet users. Right. And even without VPN, like people would go to the office, black to the land, right? So right. anyway, right. That, was, that was, you know, back in the 2000s. The thing is that, that with the cloud and with smartphones, that thing changed, right? Like mm-hmm. employees and and People outside the company would try to use the system from the company. And, you know, we all gone through this. At some point, it was a mess to deal with that. Like, you know, would you put the users in Active Directory? Uh, you know, to put it in databases. And now, like, suddenly you start, like, creating silos of users across the, the organization with different databases, with users and passwords. And, and similarly with the cloud, like, suddenly, well, you don't own the, the data center from the cloud. So you cannot control what happens there. So it, that's yet another silo of users. So, so in a way, you needed a, an answer for that problem. And um, with, with Eugenio, back in the day, again, working this team called Partisan Practices, we said, well, let, let's, let's dive into like, this whole idea of moving to the cloud and what, you know, what, what we need to teach people about, right? And so... We started first with a book that was called Moving Applications to the Cloud, uh, which would explain a lot of these things. But quickly we realized that 
identity was the biggest, the biggest uh, subject there. So we wrote a book about that specifically. It was called something like an introduction to claims-based identity, something like that. And it was really like an architectural... Sounds, sounds like a page turner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, uh, for me, it was also kind of a new term, a new, a new thing. But really, it was kind of an architectural shift on how you would think about authentication and identity. The idea that uh, you know the authentication process would be embedded in the application would be to change it to something that you know would be outside the application mm. and would be something that you can use from different applications. And the fact that you create this architecture, this authentication service now would live in a different domain, in a central domain where you would you create a cookie, and then because of that, every application would trust this centralized authentication service and you would log in once there and then you would you could you know applications would get the the benefit of being logged in already in this central service uh, and that's what essentially means you know single sign-on it was it was this idea of this architectural change that uh, that we kind of put in a in black and white in and we explain how how you could create that type of service sure. and, and from both sides the company and from the yeah, from a service consumer and the service provider, right? Like mm. both sides. Like again, like this, remember, I think the first kind of like company that, that you would see doing something like this is Salesforce. It was like, you know, like the the first company going through this kind of like enterprise readiness process, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I think they, they helped like write either like, you know, parts of the SAML, you know, like spec and skim and some of these other pieces around user provisioning and deprovisioning. So they, they were definitely kind of early to that. Exactly. So yeah, so we went through that transformation and, and that was kind of like the seeing all that friction and like kind of like what software was out there to use, Active Directory Federation Services and Tivoli, IBM and C8 Sidewinder. Like it was really, really complex to set all this up. And so that was a seed for starting out you know, the, the product in 2013. Okay, so let me just make sure I got this correct. So you were uh, this consulting company that you were running you know, it grew pretty big, right? Like, you know, there's like over 100 people there, I think, I think today. So today it's even more, yeah, but back in the days it was 100 people. Yeah, I mean, so that's like a pretty, pretty good sized company. I'm sure you learned some lessons there around like, you know, hiring and managing and keeping people, you know, moving forward. So, so some very applicable lessons as a founder. And I mean, the other thing too is, you know, I always say like just even starting your first company is, is this very, uh, like scary proposition, you know, kind of like staring into the abyss. And so you you had you've done it once from that perspective, and now you're ready to do it from the product perspective, right? Exactly. And then uh, I love this because you you actually you know you met your co-founder because he was a customer, and so there's this like sort of understanding one of, of the problem. You'd been exploring it together, you know, inside a, a, as like you know a Microsoft employee running partnerships and and sort of you know, trying to get more developers to adopt the, the Microsoft toolset. And then also as the consultant who's helping to kind of build some of those tools. Exactly. And so there's this great alignment. And I'm sure you sort of recognize that each other would like were good working partners. Where was he based when y'all were, were kind of getting started? He was at the Corp kind of headquarters in, in you know, Redmond. Okay. And that was actually great kind of like a, a test bed for us because we would work remotely, you know, back then. Like I was in Argentina, he was in in the in Redmond. Yeah, I mean, you know, you were early to the to the whole remote remote world. That makes sense. Yeah. 
Cool. Okay. So then you, you saw the opportunity around, you know, hey, as applications need to move to the cloud, authentication needs to sort of change, you know, and I always think it's important to point out these platform shifts, right? So clearly the cloud changes architectures, changes how people need to implement like the tried and tested, you know, ways of doing things before. And so now you're, you're saying, okay, here's the opportunity. This is a complex problem that people can't solve. Like what, what was, what was kind of next? Like, how did you decide we need to start build this product around it, start a company around it? how did you think through that? Yeah, of course, you know, it wasn't that uh, black and white, you know, as every other startup. We, in fact, we started with the idea of building something like, like Okta or like one login, if you, if you know those products. Sure. Yeah. Our background was kind of working with enterprises, like as part of, of you know, this for Microsoft, as part of my work mm. with this consulting company, we would implement this architecture, this kind of federated identity architecture in companies, you know, big pharma companies and, and the likes. And so we would see every, you know, like different problems that would appear in that context. So, you know, we ended up uh, creating this first version, which was kind of like, well, you know, like this dashboard to log into the different apps that you have as a company and implemented this architecture for the company with uh, a little bit more like developer uh, kind of like feeling to it. You know, not just like, you know, simply kind of plug in Salesforce and this and that and like uh, summer recipes. But, and so this was kind of like the beginning of it. And, and we realized, you know, quickly, you know, as we were talking to customers and potential customers and developers that our kind of like big advantage was kind of understanding developers mm. and, and the idea that uh, we would be solving this integration problem, right? And this is was not just simply like the idea of, you know, giving you the SAML kind of integration. It was beyond that. It was like, back then again, was the idea that like you would log in with Facebook and Google and this and that. So every one of those integrations was, you know, uh, something that developers would have to code. And and then you would say, well, and, but also we, we could help them um, as well with uh, username and passwords and the whole email for Godflow and, it was kind of growing from there that like we, we started to realize that there is a lot of value that we could give to developers who are building applications, no matter if those applications are SaaS, internal applications, you know, customer identity, kind of like uh, portals. So it was like, well, this is actually interesting. Like instead of like building this kind of single sign-on portal, why don't we go a step below that? And, and we think about like a, a building block for developers to do your own, like you could build your single sign-on portal, you could build your, you know, SaaS application. Everything would use this kind of like identity platform building blocks, and we would make it easy for developers to embed this in functionality within your applications. So that was kind of like the the realization in the first year, 2013. And of course, we had th- there was two things that really kind of resonated with us, and that helps us kind of like reinforce the product market fit. Um, and it was pretty quick for us to get product market fit, I have to say. The timing was great. We started when, when this problem was kind of like not obvious, but also started to become something needed, right? So timing was very important. And then, you know, developers, you know, they started to use these kind of like uh, services like Stripe and Twilio. So they, they started to make up their mind in terms of like, well, I can actually delegate some of these things that... Um, are maybe not that core to my business 
to other companies, right? Like why would I do payment gateways or why would like implement SMS gateways, right? Like that idea. And so we kind of like rode that, uh, that wave. Uh, so timing. And then there was a third thing as well that was important in 2010, I think 11 was the first kind of password bridge, global password bridge from a PlayStation. Maybe you remember it was like, mm, yeah, it was a massive one. It was a massive one. Seven million accounts were hacked and like those passwords were, you know, available because they were like SHA-1 hashes and so on. And suddenly that kind of put like, you know, perspective on like what it means to host and, and, and store email passwords and PII from users, right? So we kind of came in in this 2013 in the middle of that kind of three different factors that were, were, were happening. And that, that kind of like helped us also reinforce that like where we have a good thing. So, but during 2013, we ended up implementing and, and pivoting to this idea of selling to developers. And the, going back to these kind of two things, we had two things. So one was like Twitter and Twitter, like developers would be saying, well, this is great. Like Outsider helped me kind of integrate with these different uh, social providers and mm. uh, it's super easy to integrate like SDKs and blah, blah. And also some uh, would say uh, about their SAML integration. So we have like some buzz there and like we are solving something that definitely is interesting for some people. And then the second one was um, our first kind of enterprise customer. It was uh, probably like every other company, like, you know, getting that first enterprise customer it's, it's the whole journey. Um, and that, that was also during the first year. And so, I mean, like, talk about your, your earliest customers. Like, who were they? How did you find them? You know, before, even before that enterprise customer, were you working with some early vendors? Like, who were those early? I mean, it feels like maybe early on, it, could, it wasn't just, you know, kind of SaaS companies, but more like, I mean, consumer SaaS as well. Like, folks that were creating apps that you would sign in with Twitter and Facebook and stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. It was, it was hobby developers, really. You have the, you know, the typical hobby developer building something, maybe like they're a new startup, maybe a side project. Hmm. Yeah, and they would use us because it, it would save them time to, you know, just do the whole authentication piece. And instead of that, they would just spend the time on on the stuff that they they were going to do, right? So, so um, that was the initial kind of like audience, and, and, and in a way, like some word of mouth and, and stuff like that. This is a typical kind of developer go to market motion where those same people who are creating those things as a side project, they typically also have a, their main job. Right? A real job, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is very unique to developers. Yeah. If you think about like, no one in sales or customer success is like, oh yeah, I have a side job where I do, you know, my side project, my side hustle is customer success. Like what? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, right? So yeah. only developers actually practice their craft as like a hobby, you know, and then do the same thing professionally, right? So it's this kind of very unique thing about, about that audience. Totally. It's, it's great. Yeah, it's great that we have this type of thing. Uh, because, yeah, it, it helps them like experiment, helps us experiment with things. And then like, oh, okay, this is cool. Like, let's take it, you know. And, and, and so it's a, it's a great feedback loop and, and a virtuous cycle. Well, real quick, I mean, those early customers, early developers, like, you know, you could exclude them if you don't price correctly or if you don't do documentation correctly. So, like, you know, were these things that you really focused on? Like, what were your kind of core 
you know, did you have a hypothesis at that point around like, hey, here's how we can make sure we attract that audience and retain them? Was yeah. there like any, you know, hey, we need to price it low and or, or make it free? I don't, I don't know what you did in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, it was it was tricky. I mean, and again, like we had this first idea where like we would sell to employees, and so it was like a per employee, and so that that didn't that didn't work. But when we started to go to developers, we we would look at the, well, Stripe would do like you know that their their pricing model is awesome because like you're charging completely value based. So right. we couldn't do that because you know we were not a part of like the. The, the transaction itself, like we, we would be part of like the earlier uh, piece of the transaction. Um, so we couldn't do that. So we started looking at, uh, you know, pricing by amount of users. There was some other companies doing that amount of like users that we, you would store in, in Outzero. They would create, like they would sign up. And the first kind of iterations of that were like very, very, very manual. And like we would put like something in the website with like three tiers, I think. The typical, you know, like free and then like a, a, a kind of standard version, the pro version. And then the, we, I think we, we put in the first version, like called the enterprise thing as well, you know, call us type of thing. Nobody called us initially, yeah. but <laughs> you know, as, as usual. <laughs> but ju- just in case, just in case. If you know. someone would like to talk to us, here we are. <laughs> now we would do like, as you can imagine, like, support ourselves and and we would talk to every customer like we had intercom back in those days sure they they actually started together with us they had i remember very well they had this kind of 50 dollars kind of all you can eat plan yeah which was like a godsend like you you know but suddenly i would could talk to customers to developers and through this interface and we would we learned a lot and so our first kind of self-service customer developer we, we, we negotiated, <laughs> I remember negotiating like uh, to $24 a month, like, you know, that's what we could pay. <laughs> and we would create a, a custom plan for him in Stripe and like, hey, you know, go ahead and sign up here. Amazing. Anyway, so when we, we were doing the math of like, well, if we had to make a living out of this, it would, it would take us a lot of developers to, you know, to have revenue uh, and, and to live uh, from this, right? And it was a, uh, in fact, uh, Eugenio has this like kind of contract signed with his wife on, you know, if in, in six months you don't have the, you know, the revenue, similar revenue to what you were making at Microsoft, he was working at Microsoft, then you, you know, you go back to Microsoft type of thing. Right? Oh, funny. <laughs> yeah. And you, you, you know, we, we were like kind of like pressured to get revenue. Otherwise, you know, this, we had really literally six months uh, to, and so let's say we started in 2013. Our first kind of like self-service customers were like in kind of like March, April 2013, kind of four months in. And then we, we got this kind of lucky strike with this enterprise customer. I think every company startup has to have these, uh, these lucky strikes. Uh, when you change the, the, his LinkedIn, when, when he started in February, let's say 2013, from Microsoft, you know, to CEO of Altzero and like, Someone from this big company who, who was part of his network saw that and 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 kind of reached out to him saying, "Hey, you know, well, congrats on the new job, whatever. Like, our authentication system is down for two weeks. We don't know what to do, how to fix it. Can you help us with that? Like, is, are you doing something like that? Like, that can help us." And of course, we were like, "Yeah, sure, we can help you. <laughs> <laughs> we are not going to fix your system, but we can." give you a, a product we are working on that would 
do exactly the same. They were using Active Directory Federation Services. It was a big enterprise insurance company. We would give it to you and it would do the same thing. It would solve the same problems and uh, we would go out and, and make it happen for you. Of course, that wasn't that easy. But that's how we started the, that journey of selling to enter this enterprise customer. Sure. The, the, the person that reached out was uh, kind of an enterprise architect in the company. So, you know, he was like one of those people like, you know, who has influence, but not decision or kind of purchase power. So the, it, was a, it was a huge process of selling to that company. It, it took us from, I think, March to October to, to make that enterprise deal. And we were lucky because, well, first of all, like this guy saw this LinkedIn change and, you know, one of those few people who read those emails <laughs> of uh, congratulations. And, and just at the right time, right? Like, you know, hey, this is top of mind. He sees this, all the things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the, the whole thing was broken. Nobody knew how to fix it. Microsoft didn't know how to fix it. Oh, funny. And, and so and Microsoft also kind of did this kind of like typical kind of uh, big company thing of like consulting services and that we're going to charge you, I don't know, $400,000. And we'll, we'll kind of do this kind of full re-architecture. And like, it was kind of consulting, you know, kind of thing and plus new licenses and so on. It's going to take three years. And you're like, no, it's down right now. I need something now. Exactly. Yeah. That, that was our argument, really. Like, I mean, we're going to give it to you for half of that price. I mean, it was a great anchor, by the way. Like, we didn't have a clue of how to price it. Going from $24 a month to whatever, like $200,000 license, like we couldn't price that way ourselves. Like, um, so we had this anchor, which was like what this other company was charging them to, to re-architect their system. But it took us a, a long time to, to sell to, to, to this first company. You know, we have to go through security and all the typical stuff that you go through. We were like five people startup. We had to re, um, and this is, this, this is where like the on-prem version started actually. Our version back then was running in Heroku. Oh, interesting. And we, and it was the, the Node.js and MongoDB. And, uh, luckily it was Node.js and MongoDB because if it would have been something like, I don't know, .NET and SQL Server, which was our background. Yeah. We couldn't have done that like easily, I would say, right? Like, uh, with that architecture, we, we were able to, move the this Heroku up to, you know, like Puppet. It was used back then, Puppet and VMware, kind of like OBF. And uh, yeah, and we ended up rewriting the thing in three in three weeks, like re-architecting to make it pro, uh, work in the in the on-prem. Oh, wow. One of the things that you only do when you are desperate for revenue, right? Or, you know, when it's part of your overall strategy, you know, who knows? Super. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, that, that was the, the, the learning, of course, right? It was a learning. No, no, I, I, I totally get it. Like the, at that time, you know, the idea of like, hey, we're a SaaS company and we're going to be a SaaS company. And, you know, you have a customer that needs, needs a version of on-prem. Being able to deliver something like that in three weeks is... Uh, yeah, and remember, remember that we were you know, on Heroku and, and we didn't have a lot of people. So it was a decision, right? Like, hey, let's do this. And now suddenly it became part of the, the strategy of like, okay... We're this universal platform that can be deployed anywhere. Yeah, it's uh, you know, I mean, it's it was kind of a very, definitely a very different time from that perspective. So, okay, so now you have this big enterprise customer, yeah. and this is like you you had some developers that were you know paying some more were paying you twenty four dollars a month. Like, w- when did you really kind of start to feel like you had the the pool from the market? Right? I mean, it's I, I remember at some point 
you know, being on like, you know, Hacker News or something and people just assuming you were, you know, like off the zero is kind of like a, like a tool that you would just use, like just one of the, one of the things you would use to build an app, kind of like Stripe or something else. Like when did that transition sort of happen? Yeah. So, so that, this customer, we signed them, them in October 2013. Then we had a couple of acquisition offers as well. So it was kind of like all at the same time. Like mm. you would see this like, of it seems that we are solving something that a lot of different people are interested in, like developers, enterprises, and investors. We actually didn't raise money until then. We didn't even have experience raising money because like, previous stuff was not a startup. And we would start with the company. So like that was, you know, the, what I was telling before, like we had to have revenue, like, because we didn't know how to do this thing in a different way. <laughs> like we didn't have any network of people that we can, we could tap into and, and, and ask money. Like 2013 also was a different time, right? Like, especially like we were, you know, we were from LATAM and like the awareness of like raising capital was, wasn't there. Sure. So anyway, but the thing is that, uh, we got all these signals and acquisition offers and this and that. And so that was kind of like the initial feeling of the pool from the market. And we decided when, when we declined these, these offers, which was kind of a, a whole separate chapter, we ended up saying, well, let's go all in and build a company. And we suddenly realized that, well, maybe we need to, we need to raise money and, and we need to go, go big in a way, <laughs> because it seems that this is a, you know, we were at the right time and doing the right thing. And otherwise, someone else is going to do it, right? Yeah. And so we we raise money, and you know, when you raise money, and then you do the PR thing, and like it's kind of like this cycle, right? Of of hacker news, and and especially back then, again, like there wasn't much. Now there's much more stuff out there, right? And so hard maybe to get signal, but 2013 still hard, but you can you can start to see, especially for developers, word of mouth and when a company starts to get traction and so on, you start to feel that. And and in 2014, we, you know, we started to get more of these inbound requests from enterprises, and it was pretty much all inbound. Mm. And uh, yeah, and that's where like, okay, well, we need to hire a, a salesperson, and you know, eventually 2015 we raised Series A, hired the B of sales, and you know, it continued from there. And so, you know, and I guess like you know, kind of reflecting back, right. Being developer focused on a technical topic that both enterprises and startups are interested in, you know, you talked about pricing for like some of these. You know, was there a free tier that you could use, like you know, in the beginning or at, at some point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a free tier. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was critical for a developer motion. Yeah. Okay. Um, because you're you're not open source either, right? So like you know, a lot of the kind of other developer motion, oftentimes GitLab or someone else would focus on open source. So this is, you know, this is a, a proprietary service with, with a free tier. And and how did you differentiate between the free tier plan and the the sort of paid plans? Like, was it about number of users, about the team size? Like, what what sort of what were the identifiers there? Yeah, we were pretty generous with the free tier, and we always been, and, and it's still the case. We had like uh, seven thousand monthly active users for free. Oh, well, wow. which is a lot. Like you don't realize how much that is until you start, to, and, and then you try to to do a business that has monthly active users consistently. So seven thousand is a lot, and so we 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 always wanted developers to just try the thing. You know, we didn't have high cogs because of the uh, attached to these things. So, and usually what happens is that like hobby developers start something, 
you know, maybe 5% of all things actually pick up. So it's not really like a very heavy on the, on the load side when you think about the free tier for us, right? So, you know, we, we have a generous free tier and the features that kind of were available for the, the next tier were things like, for example, the whole SAML uh, integration stuff. You know, you typically want some integration when, you, when you're actually selling to an enterprise customer. So that means that you're already making money. And of course, well, of course, if you have more MIUs than 7,000, it also means that you're doing something well. There, there are some tricky scenarios where like, you know, B2C kind of like massive, you know, amount of users where like that starts to become harder. But more or less, like that was the thing. And there were features that were turning into the next tier, like SAML integration, like, you know, we have a feature called custom database connections, which is was an, a whole other chapter, but like our whole extensibility model also was baked into the system early on. Uh, and it was a learning from these first enterprise customers. When we were trying to deploy the solution to them, they had this issue of like, well, okay, I, I like your stuff, but um, you know, I have all these users in my databases I, that I cannot just migrate easily because downtime and like blah, blah, blah. Sure. So we came up with the, with a way for, instead of like doing just webhooks, because this was part of like the whole login transaction, uh, and it was kind of a synchronous thing. Webhooks wouldn't work in this case. So we would allow the customer to write code in the dashboard, in our dashboard, Node.js code that we would execute on behalf of them that would whatever they want. And so they would connect to the, their own database, which was, uh, I think, a SQL server, whatever. And, uh, and, and, and that was a key thing for us to get into that deal. And we already solved that, that problem. Oh, interesting. So it's kind of like this, I mean, almost like a, like a function as a service, like inside of the platform. Yeah. We didn't call it that way back then, but it was serverless. Yeah. <laughs> it was serverless, essentially. Like we, we created a functional service engine that would solve that problem. You, you know, using Docker and, and hmm. stuff back then that was available and uh, that would solve the problem of called, called startup and, and, and stuff like that. And, the, and, and we started using that pattern more and more throughout the code. Um, throughout the pipeline. Like, for example, another requirement that this company had was that they had to connect. Is, when the user logged in, they would have to retrieve certain authorization data from another web service that they had. They had a SOAP web service, like SOAP, I'm talking about early days of, uh, of the internet and web services. And, and we didn't want to have like an integration for web services that was hard coding the product. And so, we did the same thing. We, we opened up a hole in the code where after the login happened, you could run a piece of code that would enrich the token with more information mm-hmm. uh, that would come from whatever you want. Like you would do whatever you want. You could call some API of yours and return access denied if something happened. And, and so this was a, a, a very compelling part of our system. And even today it's a, uh, it's one of the big differentiators that we have. I would say that uh, a, a big percentage, I think something like 80s, 90% of our customers extend the platform this way. Oh, wow. So, so it's, a, it, you know, it's, been a, and it, it's been a great tool also for, for the sales engineers. Imagine, like, suddenly you don't have to ask your product team to implement, you know, this sub-web service integration. And, like, they could do it in, on their own, writing the code. And, 
which is kind of like writing a script, right? So sure. it was pretty convenient. I love that. And so, you know, that that's a that's a great feature that sort of like makes your product more extensible, makes it easier for you to like integrate into these custom things that folks need, but also just shows like how developer focused you were, right? Like exactly. You know, hey, this is a this is part of the product that's that's core. And you know, was documentation something that you focused on early on too? I mean, that's generally like a oh yeah. How how much of that did you write? Yeah, I mean, me and Ahonia would write most of it initially. Yeah, and and we had a great background by working for Microsoft. This was the big learning at Microsoft. Like, they really paid a lot of attention to that. Uh, you know, MSDN, you know, was a, the gold standard back in the days, right? Of documentation for for Microsoft. Sure. But but we would write books and hands-on labs and samples, and we really learned what it meant to be a, a product for developer, uh, you know, working for Microsoft. It was a big learning. And so the documentation aspect was, a, we, we spent a big amount of time on that. Like there were two things that we pioneered back then. Like one was like having this kind of like quick start selector thingy, right? Like you could pick your platform, whatever it is. We have a lot of them. And the second thing we, is that uh, we would tailor the documentation to the API keys that the developer already had created for their account. Mm. So you would just literally copy paste the code. You wouldn't have to go and fetch and see what the API keys and like this and that. Nobody was doing that back then. So it, it was a big, um, that was a thing that like developers kind of like would say in Twitter, like this developer experience is great. Like, you know, because they would just, get it working quickly because they could copy paste stuff. I think Stripe was doing something similar back in the days as well, but, uh, but we were like going all in to, to that, like replacing everything and making really copy pasteable. I love that. Yeah. And you know, I mean, throughout that time, like you're continuing to add new customers, right? And, and I think what's interesting, I looked at your pricing page now and you kind of have these different like you you price by use case, right? Which is interesting and, and, and kind of unusual, right? You price for B2C, you price for B2B, and then you have this sort of like what I'm going to call internal enterprise pricing as well. And so you probably have thought about your product as like those, like as those different, you know, customer use cases and segments throughout that time. You know, clearly the developer is still at the foundation of each of those and their experience is quite similar, but then the use case and the value that you're bringing, because this is a challenge for a lot of companies is like, how do I price for, High volume, uh, low ASP kind of consumery folks, and how do I price for you know lower volume, high ASP you know type users, and you know and w- understanding you know because any one of those B two B companies, like every user is worth a lot more than a B two C company, and so the you know the the value is different there. Exactly. I mean, I, I told you like we we started as thinking about like this is a platform for developers that could help you solve any use case on the authentication side. But clearly, you know, when, when, you know, when we started selling the product more and more, we, we would see this segmentation of, you know, B2C type of customers like, you know, media or uh, retail or like all these companies who, who would sell to consumers mm. versus the companies who were like more like SaaS or like, companies who would be like these partner portals, right? Like, and then of course the, 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 the internal single sign-on. And so initially we didn't want to complicate the pricing model. And so we did this kind of like single pricing model for, for, for whatever like scenario you are in. Over time, you know, like that you see now, we separated it and, and make it more 
tailored to a use case because of the reasons you say, like, it's not the same a B2C user than a, a B2B user from a value point of view and same for internal users. But, um, you know, in the early days, I think simplicity was the most important piece. And <laughs> the trick here is like, you know, you, you can you can do it essentially by just pulling a pricing page, a very simple pricing page, and then have the enterprise thing. And, and so when you would call the, the enterprise and we will, you will have a conversation, then like you're in a completely different context and you, you can have a conversation about your amount of users and you know if you're in a b2c scenario then you you would have bigger discounts and so on right like and so i think we did the right thing in the early years now it's like well we you know we evolved it yeah that makes sense yeah so you were kind of letting folks raise their hand if the if the initial pricing model didn't work right you'd be like you know tell us if this is you know if you need to fix this yeah it's risky because you also can you know kind of uh, self-select out people but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the market is so big and th- this is a need that every ca- application customer globally has. And so, you know, it, it, it's fine. Yeah. And, and so one thing I, just for listeners, I, I, I want to focus here, uh, you know, on, on the story of Auth0. And then I, it, towards the end, I want to make sure we get into, you know, a lot more about, you know, single sign-on and role-based access control because, you know, those are core features of Enterprise Ready. You know, and so I think you know having your perspective on on how to build those will be really interesting. But before we do, you know, I, I want to focus move from kind of Auth zero to a little bit more around your role there, right? So you you know you were co founder, you've been the CTO the whole time. You know, I'm I'm guessing you were managing all of the the product and engineering stuff early on. Like, how did your role evolve as the company grew, and like, how do you see your role today? Yeah, so um, I, I made a few presentations on different. Conferences about this evolution of the CTO role. Oh, cool! You, you can you can search that on uh, on Google because I actually talk about this journey that I that I've gone through. I think CTO Craft is a conference, and also Saster. I did a presentation about that. The, the role changes, of course, right? Like I'm a creator. I'm a you know, I'm a an inventor, and and that's where like, my energy uh, comes in. And so as as any other like person that, that, that is driven by that at some point, like managing a lot of people and, and having these big organizations, it, you know, it ends up being something that you don't enjoy as much as kind of being close to creating product. And so from 2013 to, I would say 2018, so five years, I kind of build the organization, design, engineering, product, security. And I was managing all of that. In 2013, I, I, we hired a CISO. So that was the first kind of like thing that I put off my, 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 my responsibility. In 2018, we had a VP of engineering. And so I handed off the whole engineering side of things. And in 2019, we hired a, a, a chief product officer. And so I handed off the whole product. Mm, okay. uh, so what, what, what do I do now? So in, during that process, kind of also was like, okay, how do I change my role now? And like, what, what do I want to do? And kind of finding my ikigai, right? Like again, as part of a, of a bigger company. And, and so I started like this office of a CTO, which is one way that you could go. Sure. And, and, and this essentially, in every company, office of CTO might mean something else. If you go to VMware, you would probably have like, I don't know, 40, 50 people kind of be, being this kind of like field CTOs that would kind of go to big accounts and would 
kind of help them with their architecture and so on. I didn't want to do that. I mean, I, I love being in a customer core, but I don't, that's not what I enjoy doing more. I, I, I like building. So the model that we ended up creating is kind of these two horizons. Horizon one is kind of 18 months, and that's what VP of product, VP of engineering are responsible for. They report to a chief product officer. And I also ended up reporting to a chief product officer instead of reporting to a CEO. Mm. Because that also was kind of eliminating a lot of frictions, right? And so I focus on the second horizon, which is a team plus month roadmap, meaning that I, I mostly incubate things, but they don't see the light for at least a year and a half. And, and there is a whole transition thing happening, and it's quite tricky to make that work in, a, in the right way. So I had a lot of learnings doing that, going through that. Yeah. But uh, eventually we, we, we made it work and we released our first kind of incubated product in last, uh, last year, which is a fungal authorization, uh, which is this Google's Dance UR inspired um, service. And that was incubated in this way. It was uh, something that took us a, a year long to build, talking to customers, engage the community through Discord. And like, it's kind of going back to those early days of building, but in a, in a much better context now, because we have customers we can talk to. We have a brand we can use to engage with people. We have their res. We have, and so it's it's actually a very joyful process to build this way too. Okay, I love that. Yeah, that's it's it's an interesting, you know, evolution, right? Kind of going from you were running the whole shebang on that side. That's not really what you loved. You're kind of doing it because, like, you had to, right? And then now getting to go in and and go and build things again and get early but have the support of the rest of the organization and then know that like, Hey, you can kind of, you know, experiment. And, you know, one thing my co-founder and I always talk about, and I'm interested in your perspective on this is the early phases of building something, right. The sort of zero to one stage is a lot of like zero to 0.3 and then back to zero and then to like 0.4 and then like throw it all away and back to zero and then, you know, build something again. And then eventually when you get to 1.0, then it's actually as incremental as people would think, right? It's 1.1, 1.2, on, on and on and on. But the early days, like, I mean, we'll build something and throw it away multiple times. And I just don't, I don't, I don't think everybody loves that, right? I think like some folks, you know, don't want to see their work. They're like, you know, I want to plan this out and have this, you know, kind of, kind of work. And so does that resonate for you in terms of how you think about building? Yeah, totally. I mean, <laughs> When I started to think about this thing, because in the early days, it's like, you know, everyone is doing everything and like, you, you are not even thinking about what you're doing, right? Like, but once you kind of, okay, you, you go through the whole like cycle of, of, of scale. And I mean, you're, you're in that process, but you're trying to now like stepping back. I started to read about these things and, and, you know, you would find like the frameworks from Ken Beck, you know, from the typical S curve of, um, how the software evolves, right? Like what you were saying with the incremental piece and, and other other um, interesting articles like uh, from uh, this guy, um, Wardley, the, the Wardley Maps guy. He, he, he wrote an article about um, pioneers, settlers, and town planners, mm. which is an, an interesting analogy for like the different type of people that enjoy different things and, and, and get energy from different things, right? And you know, the pioneers, are, you know, are okay with the ambiguity, are okay with this zero to 0 0.3 and go back to zero, like the frustrations 
of doing that and the the, the whiplash, yeah. Not, not having a lot of customers to talk to because they don't understand actually what you're solving for, you know, and, and like trying to find that. So those are the pioneers, the ones who kind of land into the island trying to conquer something that there is nothing there. But once something, you know, you, you build like those you know, little houses in the in there and like you start to understand where to get food from and so on, uh, the settlers come in, right? And, and, and these are the people who know how to scale the, the system uh, and know how to build maybe a bigger houses and with better materials and so on. And they are okay with other things as well, right? Like they are okay with the incremental value. And of course, then you have like the town planners who are like the ones who, you know, once the whole thing is built and now you need some sort of like process and, and, and governance for this place, right? And for this product. And that's where, you know, but the key thing of this article that that I think sticks to me is like, it says there are brilliant pioneers, there are brilliant settlers, and there are brilliant town planners. Because sometimes we associate like, you know, the pioneers and like these people too, like the, the great people, like the inventors and like the, you know, the brilliance, right? But the reality is that you need the, the three of them and, and you need brilliant people in each of these categories in order to create a company. So, yeah. uh, but it's important to realize this, uh, this kind of like different type of people exist. Yeah. And then, I mean, also acknowledge, you know, sure, you clearly you, you did a great job as a, a settler as well, right? And, you know, and even taking it to town planning, but like those are not the areas where you're really find energy that's probably like was more draining for you and was more like, yeah. So then you can, you know, now return to like your, not just what, what are you capable of, but where are you sort of like in your in, in flow? Where do you find Zen? So, yeah. And, and of course, this is super common. I talk to a lot of, you know, uh, CTO co-founder because, you know, I'm sure like you, you know, a lot of people like that, that has gone through it or is going through this. And there is not a lot of uh, material out there. Like there is not a lot of, uh, experience from people on going through this transition and uh, documenting it, right? Like it's uh, either kind of, you know, you get lost in the organization, you know, eventually you leave or you stay in this kind of like ambiguous role where like you're doing something, but you're actually don't, don't enjoying it much. Sure. And, and, you know, you, you, you keep going, but there is no value in doing that. And so I think it's a, it's a pretty critical uh, thing. And I, I wouldn't, I, I, I learned myself throughout the process. I, I think, I should, for example, I should have hired like a VP of engineering earlier than I did, but um, you know, <laughs> that's that's what it is. Yeah, no, we all well, there's always those key hires you look back on and you're like, oh, I wish I would have had this person like three years before I had them. <laughs> it's like my life would have been better. The problem, the problem is when when you hire that person and it wasn't the right one, and so like, you know, it's even worse. Yeah, no, you like you, you know, sometimes you have to you make a few mistakes and have, you know, and like oftentimes it's like the organization wasn't ready for that person to come in and like there's different challenges. So it's not always, you know, that person's fault specifically, but it's kind of that person organization fit. So Totally, totally. Yeah, I mean it's it's a thing across the board. So, you know, like and and to your point around not much content, not much like out there about this topic. I think there as a CEO I find so much content and so many advisors, so many of our investors like you know can can give me advice and so totally. the one thing that I'm kind of constantly looking for are like hey like my co-founder Mark you know needs like 
this mentorship and advisors and other folks that can give him feedback. And we've had, you know, we have a handful of folks that have been really great about that, but we had to actively search it out. Whereas like, if you're a CEO, like everybody has advice for you. Like every, you know, it's like all the VCs, you know, it's like, there are CEO groups. Yeah. I agree with you. That happened to me. Like, yeah. Like I, I could never really find a good support group. I mean, even though I had like, you know, the VC, you know, Bessemer would have like this kind of, meeting every uh, X amount of time where like you could meet the city, but it wasn't really, I, I needed someone like that really gone through the whole thing as a CTO co-founder that I, that I could relate experiences yeah. with. I, I, I never had that. So I think there is more people now aware and like, you know, it's a cycle, right? Like, you know. Yeah. And you know, and you, you out there giving talks about it, it sounds like a great one. You know, I'll send a, make sure my, my CTO and I both watch it together so that we have that context. So we were talking a little bit before we started recording and you know, I, I always sort of joke about like the, the, the features, like the enterprise ready features, right? There's like 11 or 12 of the core features and, and two of them, right? Single sign on and role-based access control are like very core. And oftentimes single sign on is kind of the first thing that folks will do in order to make their, you know, B2B SaaS application or enterprise application more enterprisey. And, you know, what, one of the the comments is like when people do that, they often look at these things like oh, a SAML integration, or oh, like a Google Auth integration, or like oh, some type of integration that allows me to piggyback on some federated uh, login. I can build that in a week or two, right? But the reality is, with a lot of these more complex features that like you can basically get, you know, a working demo done in a week or two, but you don't get any of the nuance and the security and the like the the sort of you know, and you don't have the experience of knowing what are the gotchas that you might hit and what are going to be the challenges. And so, you know, tools and, and, and products that actually solve those problems, you know, as a service or for you, I think can be can be super, super valuable. And so when you think about just the overall, like how to build great single sign-on, hit on a couple of those gotchas, hit on a couple of those, you know, like I, one thing I do occasionally, like when I look at, if you want to find a... Uh, a plethora of of sort of gotchas. Like I often search for some kind of you know feature plus like hacker one, and you can basically read like all the authentication you know and login like uh, mistakes that people have made or done with for, you know forgot password hacker one, and you'll like see all the all the security vulnerabilities that people have revealed you know, and you're like, oh, don't do that, don't do that, right? So you could you basically create a laundry list of things that you like shouldn't do by learning what like other people have paid bounties on. Yeah. But I'm curious if you have, you know, some of those ideas that things that like come to mind around, you know, why should folks be building, you know, single sign-on, and then, you know, the advantages of leveraging something like Auth0. Yeah, I think that, that you can probably create a list of 20 things that would happen that you have to take into account when you write these things, like in 20 and being generous, maybe. Sure. The key aspect of this is is the following: once you grow, because everything is fine, and again, like when you're starting your company, everything like. You just do whatever, you know, doesn't matter. Like you don't want to spend any time on anything. The thing is that when you grow and, and that's something that you learn only when, when you grow, right? <laughs> when you became a certain size and so on, suddenly every piece of your product will have to have someone who is uh, the watchman for that piece, right? And and sure, like you, you, you know, you could have a platform team that, you know, kind of like takes care of the whole thing, but eventually there's going to be a need for changing the authentication piece. There's going to be a need for adding functionality that thing to that thing. There's going to be a need for fixing a security vulnerability to that and, and you know, countless of other things. 
And you know, you will ha you have forgotten who wrote that piece. And if, and if it was USCTO, well, even worse, like because it means that nobody touched it. <laughs> so at the end of the day, it, it, it has to do with that. It's you know, you want to be prepared for that future. And, and if you assume that you're going to grow and you want to become bigger, then either you, you think about the headcount that you will need in, in five years for the, the team that would own this piece of functionality, or, you know, you, you're, you make a smarter decision and you just say, well, instead of hiring people in, in the future, I, I just use a service. And of course, you know, it's fine to, to do that later, but like you can start like with your own and then move. But the reality is that today with like often it's like startup plans and there is a lot of ways to start with, you know, something with a, with a low price, you know, get done with it and make sure that also it's secure, that, it, that it's protected from different attacks. Like it implements all the summer functionality that, uh, that you will find down the road of like this quirky customer who is using CA Sideminder 3.5 and, has like this canonicalization algorithm that you never thought about. And now suddenly you have to change the library that you're using for SAML, which is a you know, mess or like finding this PR from someone who sent <laughs> the fix for that problem. And like, you know, now you have to, to, to use a fork that is not the, the main one. Anyway, you, you get the point, right? Like that's the main, the main thing to get in account. You don't want to, you don't, you don't want to be in that position when you grow. And so it's better just to in general, like, and in fact, this was the, the thing early on in the, when we, when we had our first big, big, big customer, this was Atlassian in 2016, they came to us because it was this mandate across the company for like everything that can be outsourced, we should outsource. Mm. That was coming from the co-founders of the company because they realized that, yeah, I mean, developers are a scarce resource and uh, you don't want to spend those resources in things that, there is no differentiation on in a world where like you have enough money and resources to, you know, to, to, to spend on, uh, things and, you know, you should just spend it on, on the right things. So anyway, that's the, and, and that, that, that was a big learning for me when, when I was watching that happening from, you know, I, like this big company with tons of developers is deciding to outsource such a core piece of their product. Uh, well, you know, that was kind of like the realization of like, when you become big, those are the problems that you end up having. Like, uh, you need to really focus and use the right people from the on, on the right things. Yeah, that's sort of you know we think about the idea of of build versus buy in in the same sense, right? Where you're like the idea that you could write it, you know, a crappy version of this in two weeks that's going to have a bunch of gaps, you know, and and even if you're okay with those gaps, to your point. Like if then in a year you need to do something different or someone discovers the, a security bug and, and submits it to your hacker one, then is that person still there? Number one, right? Did they leave? Or they are, if, are, if they are still there, great. Uh, now they have to like reload all the context of what they wrote and like, you know, get back into this. Whereas if you have a team behind it, well, like, I mean, hopefully they've been updating the platform all along and that, you know, like the, the, uh, the company that you that you, you are using as a vendor is like is, is helping you avoid that problem. But even if a problem does arise, like somebody has context, right? And and even if it's like, hey, great, I need to upgrade my this version or you know update something. There's like a 
customer success manager who can like walk you through that and a support team and they kind of have all the context already. And so it's funny, I often say like, particularly it's within a big company, right? What you're going to see is they have tons of different applications that that they're developing. And if without you, they're using all different forms of authentication and you know every team's going to do it differently and so by like kind of centralizing and standardizing there's like a consistent way to do things and then that makes it even more repeatable and even easier for one person to move from one team to another cuz they don't have to get super familiar with some new some new tooling yeah and there is there is nuance of course right like we we're going through the same thing now with authorization right like i told you we releasing this finger authorization service the nuance here is that like sometimes there are like open source versions of these things Right. Sure. And that is okay. And that is fine. And that is great. But yeah, ultimately what happens is that that open source version still, you have to host it, manage it. And like, and that's why open core is a successful model because at the end of the day, you don't want to even spend the time of like the DevOps people running this, this stuff, you know, unless, you know, th- that is really core to our, you know, value proposition, but 95%, 99% of the companies, that's not the case. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. There's, uh, there's so many of these common services that to your point are non-differentiating that when you look at it, you're like, do we need this to be something that we own or do we want to try to create value, you know, through actual features, right? Like, is this a, is this a thing that like really changes our, you know, differentiates us from the rest of the market, which often it doesn't. Yeah. And so that, that makes sense for, you know, for the, the, you know, authentication side to so t- talk more about the, the new thing you've built you know, around our back as well. Like, you know, what's that functionality? You know, when you mentioned Zanzibar, like talk a little bit about what Zanzibar is um, and give us some context on, on that uh, new offering. Yeah, so, um, you know, in the same way that authentication, in a way, like we managed to find a way to generalize it, you know, through these protocols and standards and open Connect and OAuth and, and, and JSON tokens and so on, which been, it's been great. There is nothing like that in the authorization side of things, right? And uh, you know, everybody like who has implementing has implemented authorization. It's every you know, it's part of your application. If you did RBAC, then you know you have a database with table, with roles in it, with maybe some permissions that chat switch the ones who implemented it, who realize that they have to decouple roles from permissions, and then you have users related to those roles. And that is kind of the, the very basic roles story, right? Like, you know, you, you're an admin, you're an editor, you're like whatever, right? Right. And, and, and that works. <laughs> That's fine. But usually when you start like going up market and you find like more complex domains, like healthcare, actually in every other domain, there are like complexities, right? And, and, and usually the permissions uh, are also attached to other things than simply just roles. The, the things that you can do in a certain application, right? You can you can have permissions based on a certain attributes of, of a user, which is something that we we support. But uh, but then you also have like concept of, of hierarchies of things, right? Uh, for example, in GitHub, in GitHub you have organizations, and that, that organization has repos, and that organization has groups of teams of users, and you might want to give access to one user to a certain repo, to a team, to a certain set of repos. And so you start like to visualize this kind of like hierarchy of things or Google Docs would be a diff- another example where you have folders with documents and you want to 
assign permissions to groups or individual users or groups of groups. And so suddenly you have like this kind of graph of entities, of principles and, and resources that you actually want to do RBAC in that context, not just simply like an editor in this thing. And so there is no genetic way of solving that problem. And so everybody is solving it again and again. And uh, the guys from Google implement, they implemented this kind of generic global consistent authorization system across all their products, which is called Google Zanzibar. Um, they realize this is a, an issue that, you know, they would be solving over and over. And so they would kind of factor out the core functionality of, of each of these uh, different uh, implementations that they have across YouTube, Gmail, calendar, you name it, like every, every one of their products has authorization needs, right? So, and they wrote a paper once they, you know, it's an internal system. You cannot use it. You cannot buy it from Google, but they wrote a paper with the ideas and the semantics of this system. And they're, they're kind of a, another technical architecture, but the, the conceptual architecture of, of that thing or like, you know, what is the language for where, where you can express these hierarchies that I was talking about, the different entities that exist and the relationship between the, the different entities. So they wrote that. And, uh, and so we started out in 2013. So like, let's say it's been like eight, nine years to us. It, it felt like, okay, well, we, we, we did this with authentication. I think it's time now for authorization to, to have its moment of, of, uh, at least give it a try. Right? We need to give it a try and see if there is a way to, optimize and to commoditize this piece of infrastructure and, uh, and make it available for, for more people and, and, and for developers who usually start with this simple model. And then when they go up market, they had to rewrite their whole authorization system because it's, it was not enough. So we came up with this implementation of, of Google Zanzibar. This was part of this team that I, um, I lead with the office of CTO. We, we call it out zero lab. And so what we did is, is, you know, we started in, let's say, January last year, we started talking to customers. Of course, we had a lot of customers to talk to because authorization is pretty adjacent to our authentication. Pretty well aligned. Yeah, we have an offering on uh, already for RBAC, very simple RBAC. But we want to like, okay, to learn more, right? And so we talked to different type of customers and this type of situation, it, it's very common. Like they, they usually have complex authorization systems. Okay. But the thing that we wanted to validate uh, first and foremost was that is this Zanzibar implementation, I mean, it works for Google, clearly, they implemented it. But could it work for others? And so that was kind of like the validation that we've gone through. And so we we created this playground first where you would you could go for free. It's a, it's a, it's a free tool. You could go and, and try the, uh, you know, to model your system, authorization system. And so we had tons of customers going through that we initially, we helped them, we, you know, we would do a session with them where, we, you know, we would ask them questions and we would kind of map out. And so we learned, you know, what, what would be the best way to express their authorization model? Uh, we came up with a better kind of uh, semantics um, for the language than what Google uh, provided. Uh, and so, we, you know, we started learning and like, okay, what are the other things that we need to solve in the domain? And, and, and you know, we created these different kind of artifacts for the for this service and uh, we will release and we open it up more now to developers 
and there is a developer community preview that we, we, we put out there. And so now anyone can go and try it out and build our system, our session system with it. Yeah, and eventually it will go GA sometime, um, hopefully this, this year for enterprise customers. So, and that's kind of the process, you know, going back to the previous question, like model for a, the CTO who wants to continue to build. Uh, this is an example of, of that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, this, sort of hearing that, you know, research phase, like development phase, early access, and then sort of a beta and then GA process. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's in one, it's super important for companies to be able to do that as they, as they scale and grow. But two, so like in, in terms of this, like you mentioned some differences between this offering and the RBAC offering you have. Like when you think about what, and you mentioned sort of maybe RBAC in your mind is a little bit more narrow to like, it's, it's more about users and permissions and less about like the hierarchy of, uh, of actual like objects. Is that, is that sort of right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so, so you can model more complex domains essentially. So for, uh, going back to GitHub as an example. So you have repos, hmm. you have organizations that has teams and, and inside that, those repos, you might, you might even have more kind of fine-grained entities that you want to manage. But I think repos is the, the lowest denominator there. And, and so the way that GitHub solves it today is likely just storing everything in a database attached to the repo ID. And so the roles and everything ends up being in a database table. The moment that you start having more systems that depend on that information, now you depend on that table that you, where you store all these, right? So the idea of, of, of this system, is of this uh, authorization service that is global and, and accessible for all applications is that you think about your model in a central way, in a, in a single place, right? And then, then every application can consume that. Mm. Uh, it's, it's kind of like thinking of like a authorization microservice of beyond just like, you know, what role is Grant in? It's like what permission does Grant has in for this resource? Sure. It's, it's one more. And, 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 and you could belong to some hierarchy that gives you access because you belong to that hierarchy. And similar to in the resources side of things, right? Like, yeah. Maybe, you know, there is a collection of repositories that all has, they all together has a management and permissions associated to that. Uh, and so there is a lot of examples like this in, in, in the real world. Like, you know, for example, a, a company that sells publications, they yeah. uh, research publications, the papers, and they sell typically in collections of papers of a certain topic. And so they want to give access to different collections, to different people and different teams inside the organization instead of single persons. So anyway, that, it, it's essentially a system that allows you to model those type of things. Yeah, that makes sense. I think the key difference there for me is you know, identifying that it's not just about users and like what are their access permissions broadly, but it's like being able to take that and then pairing it with a grouping hierarchy of resources and saying like, you know, you, that way you, there's some inheritance that you can have across both sides, but, but really that the, the matching make, making it really important. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course it's like everything else It's like, well, this is an API that solves you this, this, this problem for you. But then if you think about audit logs, for example, like, you know, this also would, can give you that audit level kind of out of the box for like every ACL check that happened or every change in the permission system. Or when you want to change your permission system, because now it's something else, you know, you added, 
that's a very big kind of like engineering project usually. Like when you want to change your authorization system, right? Mm. And so this thing has kind of the concept of versioning built in. And so, mm. yeah, the thing that it also um, solves for you is that the fact that now you have an, a central authorization service that is used across all your application systems, services, whatever, is that you get like auditing out of the box, you get versioning, which is also a big problem usually when you want to change your authorization domain model. Mm. That is not an easy change. You want to do it in a way that, you know, you do kind of shadow type of uh, strategies where, you know, you start trying and see if like, if uh, your model replies the same thing now or like it changed the, the answer. Um, and so we thought about all those stuff as well, like the, the things that you typically end up doing when you're solving authorization at scale. That makes sense. And so, and you mentioned like a, a DSL, kind of a, some kind of way, way to, to set all this up, right? Is it like a, a, a custom DSL or is it, did you model it after anything? And is it, can you like port in a manifest and like, you, is that what you use to sort of version this across, you know, if you want to kind of version control your, you know, how you, how you set this all up? Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, you have, um, initially we started with the, 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 the dreaded YAML, mm-hmm. of course. And I, I think Google actually also does YAML in the, in the, in the paper. But yeah, once, you know, we started talking to customers, like it, it was very hard to, to grok and to understand what's going on. And in that, when you were reading this and, and we ended up with like our own, uh, little language that, uh, that would allow you to express a lot of these things. But in a much simpler, like natural language way. Okay. Uh, you can look at it in the in the playground that we have. Um, I think it's uh, play.fga.dev. That's the yeah. You you would see there like a, different examples of uh, authorization uh, models. Oh, cool. Like we have GitHub, we have G Drive, we have like an IoT example, Slack. You know, Slack with channels and all sorts of uh, things, entitlements, um, and so on. Oh, it's funny you call it uh, the the DSL, the domain specific language. I like it. And so, like as a developer, I would version control this this uh, either as JSON or as a DSL, and then I would you know kind of move that along into your uh, into different environments. Yeah, exactly. It's cool. And so this is this is pretty new. Is this like when when did you launch it? Yeah, we we launched it in uh, I think December, and uh, as part of building the the, the thing. Throughout the 2021, <laughs> we also engaged with the community. That was that was an interesting kind of like going back to building product in 2021, right? Like when I was doing it, there was no kind of concept of Discord, for example, or the community, right? Of developers, like, where you would find the community of developers? Was well, maybe Twitter, maybe Hacker News, maybe. But now you have these kind of chats that are you know that uh, people can join. And uh, it was great because we were able to have like a channel with uh, with a community where we would discuss things, you know, in a, in a similar way where you know like the open source um, happens, and uh, you know we would talk about things and discuss and tell people when we would release something new, and it was it was great to kind of like go back to that kind of uh, motion. Interesting, yeah. So I just saw the the community, and so I guess that's another interesting insight for folks that are building kind of developer based companies that like the idea of using discord to really like build community and, and let folks connect. You found that to be pretty successful. 
Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it, it, it's it's yet another way to you know at the end of it to learn. When you're building a product, uh, you want to optimize for learning, and uh, learning comes in different ways. From again, like in, the, in our case, we would want to talk to developers who have gone through this problem, who has implemented something like this. So we would have different sources of those developers. Of course, our customers are one of those sources. You don't want to disrupt them and like you know ask them all the time for for kind of help and and and. Mm. But you know you you typically find these kind of like core customers that they are really desperate for a type of solution like this and and they would give you time, right? But you also want to find developers who are like you know the developers who who maybe have more time in their hands and. And they are interested in these things as well. And so mm-hmm. by engaging these people as well, you also have a different type of input. But yeah, most importantly is how do you learn faster and, and, and more? Yeah. And, and from a, a wide variety of sort of target sort of users, right? You don't, you don't want just like one profile. You want, I mean, think about your use cases. You have those three different profiles pretty clear. So exactly. that's great. Uh, Matthias, anything that we missed here? Anything else you want to chime in with? Yeah, I guess uh, the only thing that we we didn't touch on is like uh, Outzero became a, a merged with uh, Okta in March last year, and so it's, it's been a, a little bit of a, of a change. But yeah, that that's been a, a ride now. It's been a year almost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a, you know, a huge acquisition. I still remember at the time it was like pretty well received in the market. So you know, I mean, this is it was a six. It's $0.5 billion acquisition, is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's huge. Yeah, congrats on that. And I mean, I'm sure, one, it, it seems like a great fit for a you know an acquirer. I mean, to, to your point, more of a merger because it's like two different ends of the spectrum in terms of solving different parts of the problem. And being able to bring those together, I think, you know, can be better for both the uh, the end user, right, or the service you know provider and the service consumer, right? So that's the that's really... I'm sure it's been a, a great a great combo. Yeah, when when we were thinking about and by the way, the, the, this acquisition, I think there is a whole chapter around acquisitions and like for founders, right? like how you think about acquisition. Like we we got a lot of offers throughout the different years. In fact, Okta tried to acquire us since 2013, the first year. Oh, funny! Every year, like we would talk to Todd and like exchange notes. <laughs> and, uh, it reminds me of PayPal and, e- and eBay. You know, like, P- eBay tried to acquire PayPal like you know six times, and the prices kept getting higher and higher. Eventually, they were like, "We just got to buy it. Exactly, we don't care the price. Give it to us." Yeah, it was a little bit like that. Um, of course, uh, you know, at, at, it makes a lot of sense for Okta. Uh, in fact, they would say we wouldn't have sold the company really. Like we were going IPO, and uh, but. The only company that we said, well, this would be it because it, it would be very strategic for them and, and, and for us, it would be great also for for customers and the, and the potential impact that we can have, right? Because at the end of the day, if you think about, uh, you know, this kind of idea of the two ends of the same pipe, right? Like they sell their product mostly to IT organizations who are, who are connecting to SaaS applications. They want to they wanna do single sign-on with, with, between those applications and we sell to the ones writing those applications. So those developers who who are, uh, have the power to change the the fabric between the one or the other. And if you think now about the function authorization service, like I was talking about or, or authentication, 
by having this, this system in place and these uh, domains specified you know, in a certain way, well, we, we could make, if you use opt on one side, if you sit on the other side, now we could have all sorts of efficiencies in the channel, right? Because we know, you know, that you're using a certain certain thing. And, and, and so, you know, make the life easier of, for, now for the IT people, but also for the developers and also for the end user at the end of the day. And that's where like the mission thing is, uh, is exciting because we, we want to enable that type of thing. Like uh, use any technology by any, any person in a most efficient way that is only possible when you have this type of thing in hand. Right. And, and that's what made us say, okay, this could actually be good for users and customers. If we, if we do it in a way also that is, uh, you know, that we promote standards and not just like, you know, it would only work with doing outside and out there. Right. And, uh, and that's kind of the, the spirit of the company. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, one of those companies I've always had a lot of respect for. I think a lot of folks do as well. So, Again, you know, very, very excited for that. And I'm sure you've, you've, you've got some stories in, as part of those acquisitions, right? Those are like interesting overtures and, you know, probably too, because it's like, you know, they've always been a key partner, right? You've always probably worked with them, integrated with their things. And so, you know, there's always this proximity and, you know, I'm guessing the, the market's being pretty generous over the last you know, through, throughout the pandemic, we're, we're in a nice way for that, for them to feel like, okay, we have to take advantage of where, where we are today and, you know, the, the multiples that we have and really try to build this business out. So yeah, I'm sure yeah. they, it was a, it's a good move. Yeah. It's been, it's been a great journey. Like, of course, integrations are complex and the, there is people involved and, and, uh, it's not, a all roses when you do these type of things, but, um, there are some key, of course, learnings and, and aspects of, of situations like these that uh, that make things uh, better. Uh, but the main, most, most important thing is, you know, to be aligned on, on that uh, on the mission and, and and also become part of a company who really wants that thing, right? And uh, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a key piece. And they they you know told the CEO really wanted to to have this. They would sell to IT, we sell to developers, and, and it's a DNA that uh, you, you have to born with, right? And they born with the IT DNA, sysadmin, like, you know, the, the, the whole CISO, CIO side of the house. And we, we born with the developer, CTO, VP engineering. But uh, most importantly, uh, I think that the way that we think about customers and, and the values that we both kind of share is what makes things work or not and so, yeah, so far it's been it's been a, a good journey i love it well ts thank you so much i know we're, we're running up on the uh the end of our our time here you know we had a hard stop but um amazing like really really appreciate your time and you know you're you're being so open with us and sharing kind of the backstory and then you know how things are going and what you've been up to so this was great absolutely thanks uh, grant thanks for uh for the great podcast and uh, we'll be in touch. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated. 
where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.